0: Welcome, everyone, to the latest, greatest episode of The Network Age. And as you may have seen on Twitter, this might be our final episode for a while. But I have to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, everything in between is going to be a good one. For one last time, I am Bitchel Ritson, joined, as always, by my handsome co-host, the artist formerly known as Habsel Rigner, Josh, and back from the dead back from the very early eight, uh days of the network age for all you long-time listeners we have Tim Tim thank you so much for joining us
1: Hello everyone it's good to be back
0: Yeah did you miss it did it does it feel just like it always did do we keep your seat warm
1: Yeah river riverside feels like the whole you know podcast setup everything feels about like it always did you know you have maybe a little more of a groove there now but it's um yeah it's weird it's a lot of a lot of deja vu because i think it's been about a year since i was last doing it i remember doing this setup in this you know with this microphone when i first moved to this apartment and now i'll be leaving it soon after a yearly wow wow
0: a year a year has passed
2: are you willing to tell us where you're going
1: um well I'll say where I am first because that's like the least doxy thinks that I'll be out, but I'm in um Italy in Milan. Um and yeah, likely um, you know, probably going to the US. We'll see what um if everything works out, but uh probably the Bay Area. Despite the collapse. Yeah, yeah, there's been I think um
2: I mean I keep hearing I decide, about collapse.
1: Either I decided stuff wasn't collapsing or I became more fine with collapse or Honestly, I just got sick of everybody being, like, 70 years old when I walk around on the streets, so I think <laughs> that's most of it.
0: Well, a year is important because a lot has happened in the last year, and that, you know, that's why we are having you on, because, Tim, much like you are back from the dead, a project that you are working on that hassel slash Josh and I work on has has been revived. We you know we were never dead. You know, we've always been here, but we're we're coming back into the to the public light and really we're having you on to talk about what has changed with the our company, formerly known as Okbar, going through a rebrand right now and, and what are we calling it now? We're calling it Nectar OS. Is that right? That's right. Um so unless something
1: drastic changes between now and when this episode's released, happy to introduce that to the world hopefully they'll soon see the imagery of the you know hummingbirds and hanging gardens and jewels um but yeah i think we're a lot more you know lush and verdant now
0: in many ways mm-hmm. we're we're extravagant fertile and life-giving i would say about uh our our product and we're we're excited for everyone to to get to see it and to to get their their hands covered in sweet sticky in, our, nectar. in
2: our nectar in our nectar exactly yes yeah and so, it. don't laugh. <laughs>
0: yeah. So, Tim, I think you know, for most of the people listening to the show, they they know about Ukbar, they know about the project, mm-hmm. um, and obviously, or you know, what was known as Ukbar. and obviously, a lot of changes have have come in the last year. So, why don't you tell us just a little bit about you know what the artist formerly known known as Ukbar was doing, why we made the changes we did, and you know where we're headed now.
1: We always wanted to use a decentralized computing layer, decentralized operating system, in order to make, um, let's say, you know, crypto really work. And I think that's even expanded. Like, crypto is still very much the focus, and I think in the last year or two, that's even expanded to wanting to integrate AI into that. Um, in that, like, in that whole decentralized AI world integrated with crypto. Um, and so, I think that. We, our initial, you know, thesis was that, okay, we're, we want to build this, you know, decentralized way to interact, um, this layer to interact with crypto. And it seemed that Urbit was the best way to do that because that it had a lot of, you know, engineering hours go into making exactly a decentralized operating system. Um, and I think, like, the main thing that happened was our timelines didn't intersect. I think that, you know, we were depending on on a core project to, you know, sort of keep pace and deliver a certain level of primitives that we needed uh, in order to, you know, keep incrementally delivering on our vision. And when that doesn't, wasn't happening, and so I'm not, you know, going to, like, blame anyone there. I think a lot of people associated with with Urbit would say, oh, you know, it might not be ready yet, um, you know, for that kind of thing. Um, then we had to look elsewhere, and we had to look at, are there any other primitives that are undergoing heavy development uh that can be used to make a decentralized operating system uh and even if we have to take a step back uh what you know how can we take like you know one step back in order to take you know two three four steps forward so we had to stop around last you know i think it was you know give or take when we started talking about this to people was like around like you know june or so um and look at okay what is there that we could use in order to really realize our vision
0: yeah I think that the mistake that some people have made is thinking that this is in any way us turning our back on the things that got us interested in the project in the first place you know uh, a decentralized os uh, peer-to-peer applications, crypto integrations you know a truly de- decentralized way to use the internet but what I what I tell people is that like actually this pivot, was made in order to better realize those goals. And once again, this isn't about, you know, whether Urbit is right or wrong. It's just this is a technical change that we needed to make to actually execute our project to the highest possible level.
1: Yeah, I can, if for our sort of more technical listeners or people who want the, I guess I'd call it the, you know, management consultants view of tech, <laughs> like, you know, where, where you're like a smart person, but maybe not technical, I can give like uh, just a quick overview of what that decision looks like because it was actually like very simple at the end of Please. the day. Um, and so and I don't think anything I'm gonna say is going to uh, really be controversial even to people who still work on URBIT, you know, many of whom I'm you know, still on good terms with. Um, and so it was very clear that if you wanted to make Urbit or another decentralized operating system work, you were going to need to, let's say, starting with Urbit, you were going to need to rewrite um, its sort of kernel, some of like the uh, assumptions that it makes, and really streamline a lot of things in the way that you often have to do with technical projects that have kind of accrued a lot of uh, code over the years that doesn't you know, turn out to be what you need. So the first thing is uh, that there's sort of a necessary rewrite that has to happen there. And the second thing was, if you're going to do that rewrite, it's a good time to take a step back and think, um what do we want to be the base layer of that? Um, do we want it to compile down to Urbit's Hoon and Knock bottom layer? Um, or is there anything else? And so once we started looking into the progress that had been made on Wasm over... I mean, I think you know everyone knows what it's... Well, who's heavily into this world knows what it's done in the last six or seven years. But even in the last two or three, uh, there have been a lot of steps forward. And where we, you know, thought it, it very quickly became clear that we could probably use this uh, to do it. So it really was just a question of a rewrite is going to have to happen and a cleanup at that sort of base operating system level is going to have to happen. And then what language should we do that in? Um, what, should we be, what should we be targeting? And once we made those decisions and kind of analyzed everything clearly, a lot of stuff fell into place rapidly.
0: Yeah. So, may, I mean, maybe this is a good time to talk about what Nectar actually is now. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if we pivoted away from the urbit ecosystem, what does it look like now? You mentioned Wasm. Um, mm-hmm. What are the pieces that are putting this together? And what are the advantages of organizing the system this way?
1: Given that, you know, I think our audience has a lot of urban exposure. I'll explain it in urbit analogous terms, um, not because I think... Erbit friendly. Are like, yeah, I think that not because those are strictly necessary, but just, to, you know, for ease of explanation. So when I talk about using Wasm, that's in a very specific context. That's for you want to write an application that you deliver to other users on the network. The same as, you know, an Urbit user who's writing programs would think of like a Gaul app, they would call it. Or if you're just thinking of just an app that you're installing via, um, you know, the app the app manager. And so when we say that you write it in Wasm, it means you write your program in Rust or JavaScript or Python. We'll be supporting other, excuse me, options as well. And, you know, we have tools that compile that into a package that's in Wasm, and then you can distribute it to the other nodes. Uh, And it will just work on their node because you're targeting, uh, you know, this one layer. In terms of the rest of the system, it's actually, again, very, very similar to Urbit because we really liked the idea of there being this set of pieces uh, that you can depend on as a developer. And I worked for a while, you know, onboarding people to Urbit. And it was very clear that what they really liked in the system is this sort of batteries included promise where you can be like, okay, I have, you know, out of the box my networking is just saying the names of other nodes and sending messages to them, saying these nodes have access to these resources. These ones don't. Uh, being able to store uh, data easily, um, you know, things like send messages across the network and send data. Um, and also build you know front ends uh, that can target you know, your own node uh, and manipulate and manipulate the data there. So for having you know networking, Um, data storage. uh, Maintaining the consistency of the node is another really big thing. And all that really means is that if you back up your, if your, you know, formerly UQBAR, now Nectar node is backed up, uh, you'll be able to restore it. It'll be in a consistent state and it'll be able to, you know, sync up with the rest of the network and start doing useful things. So it's very, very similar to Urbit in that there's a networking layer. Uh, we do have a PKI on chain, although it's not um, financialized in the same way. Um, it has, you know, it manages your data. Uh, it manages like network communication. It manages installing processes. And then users, uh, developers, can also develop applications uh, and distribute them to other nodes in the network uh, and to their own node.
0: I. I'll- a lot is made of the phrase, uh, just works. I feel like I hear this in tech all the times. It, it's both an aspiration and, you know, a claim, lots of project names. but here's the thing, Tim and Josh, a lot of times people say stuff just works and it doesn't just work at all. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it seems, I mean, this was something that Urbit said all the time, right? And then you would go to use it and, and stuff would fall apart. What what does this actually mean for, for Nectar, that phrase?
1: Yeah, and I wanna be nice to the people there where I think they were trying to make it just work. I think there's a sure. lot of technical we assumptions. We all like everything to just work. I <laughs> to make
0: my life just work.
1: There's there's a number of technical assumptions in their stack and implementation things that make that hard. But yeah, we do not yet just work. I think we are very close to just working. And what I mean by just work is You can think of it from the level of, you know, a company or a developer or a user. Uh, For a developer encountering a project, it means they can type a couple simple commands into their terminal or cut and paste a couple things. And they're up and running with an environment that isn't just sort of constantly breaking or throwing weird errors. And they can easily follow along with examples and start getting stuff uh you know, up, and so just works is the dimension of time like are there not that many commands? It's the dimension of reliability uh do those commands work um and I guess like almost like consistency with the learning materials um does like you know is does the stuff that you're being shown how to do uh correspond with what you're seeing on your screen? I think programmers are much more tactile than is commonly realized, and they almost so I guess I was reading a book by. Uh, It was Antonio Garcia Martinez about when he went to work at Facebook after his company got acquired. Uh, I think the book's called Chaos Monkeys. And he was just talking about, you know, his his first day he had to get, you know, familiar with the Facebook code base. And so he, like, downloaded, you know, their whole programming environment and then went to their, you know, poke function. And I think he just changed poke to funk. But it's, like, very sort of stupid and puerile. But, like, a lot of the code I write will be, like sanity checks me writing like you know x is dumb or tim time or something and like there's this very tactile element where you need everything to just work so that then you can go and incrementally change something a little bit and start feel like getting feedback that stuff is working well so that's what the developer's perspective you know from the company's perspective it's that you can deploy hosted nodes or be confident that users can download their own nodes and that it'll work with your app and of course for users it's that you can follow those instructions and have some very simple onboarding process to a node that then quickly leaves you doing something interesting uh, that was the reason you clicked, you know, download or install or sign up in the first place.
2: This, like, uh, brings up the question of backwards compatibility as well, right? Which is an an Erbit thing we didn't get, but um, something we would like to guarantee in Nectar, I think?
1: Yeah, we've done it. Like, backwards compatibility is doable. It's, like, meaning that if you... We deploy new versions of our system the old one, you can still run your old programs. Um, And there's a number of things that we're doing to make that happen. But, you know, just as a proof of concept, I think, you know, let's say Microsoft went to really great lengths to make sure that, you know, new versions of Windows would still be able to run old ones. Um, You know, Apple does a decent job of this in general. um, On Linux, this often, like, this works pretty well. And that does, of course, come at the cost of accruing some cruft um but for a system like ours that's fairly simple usually the way that the backwards compatibility will feel is that oh you were able you're not necessarily gaining huge new capabilities uh but maybe there's some more ergonomic way to do things even though the old way um you know did work but had you know had some extra stuff so one thing we feel pretty confident that we'll be able to commit to is that when we release the version 1.0 sometime in the next you know, probably one to two months, uh, we'll be able to not make breaking changes to that. Everything will be bug fixes uh, or additional features, but your old programs should still work. And I think this is th- this sort of the theoretical and the practical side of making a robust decentralized OS. And the theoretical side is, okay, we need to, you know, theoretically make it very strong, like, you know, very strong, think everything out, have a good design. And the practical side is that what you're really trying to do is get a lot of people coordinated on a standard. And so while you would like your standard to be perfect, the most important thing is that it actually exists and that they're on it um, and that you have a path to, you know, gradually uh, fixing, like fixing and improving things over time but that you can keep everyone on that standard and i think that those standards can be surprisingly long-lived in in ways that you know maybe the more autistic sides of us dislike or you're like why are we still stuck with like you know x cruft from you know unix in the 70s and you do want to redesign a lot of that in a new system but also in a way that's you know, pretty good. There's there's a lot of value to just having a system, and you can get many many years out of that, even if you don't get everything perfect. Particularly if you have, you know, ways to keep backwards compatibility and fi- and fix things for new developers, users, uh, um, and applications as you go.
0: Do you think that you're not being ambitious enough starting with just version 1.0? Why not like version five or ten? Get us a little, you know, further along. Yeah, there was
1: a lot of there was a lot of internal debate over that one. I mean. Should I answer that seriously or like (laughs) I'm I'm trying to I think there's a big balance between ambitiousness and actually getting it out and I think there's such a big gap right now in let's call it crypto land between what people think should be done or that they you know know theoretically should be done because it's just a matter of combining some programming pieces And what you actually have when you're using stuff that I think the ambitiousness is in trying to be like, we're going to make a standard that sticks. And then the practical, like more down to earth part is it's probably less important that it, you know, be your galaxy brained like seventh plane of existence thing and actually, you know, exist in some finite amount of time. Mm
0: Mm-hmm so let's talk about um some of the things that actually put nectar together you know um we have uh you know the kernels being written in rust it's um you know a lot of mm-hmm. the the processes compiled to wasm and then we also we also have some things that you know are going to be familiar to Arib people we've got a, a a pki um you're going to have a choice between being a um a direct or indirect node, which may involve some version of hosting that um, Urbit people are familiar with. What does the, the architecture look like at a mer- let's more variable
1: level? Let's talk about the PKI first, because I think this was one thing that Urbit did very well, uh, with with a few details that probably could have been better, which is let's have a public key interface, um, infrastructure where you can say, this is my public key and actually own it. And use blockchains to get consensus around who owns what, what version it's on, what the keys are. Like blockchains are great for PKIs. I think that, you know, probably for legacy reasons or fundraising reasons, um, you know, I think they added in the galaxy star planet aspect, which is there's all kinds of like post hoc justifications you can do for that. But really at the end of the day, like what you the the main key thing is that there be a pki online the the price aspects of it are a a lot less relevant and i think if you got you know people drunk they would admit that pretty easily
2: i thought it was Um, like a a modern day fiefdom wasn't that the reason (laughs) I, i i was gonna be a lord that's
0: nice. I think there's,
1: yeah, I mean, again, you can put a lot of stuff on here. At the end of the day, I think there's a very positive thing to take out, which is that you, like, blockchains are great for PKIs. Uh, you want a PK, uh, one PKI to be the standard. Um, if you want it to be the standard, I think you should make it, like, maximally interoperable. So we're looking, we have our own name system where you can register names, but we're also letting people uh you know use the names of other NFT classes. Notably I think we'll put on ENS, Lens. There's probably a couple others that we'll enable right out of the bat. Uh, the advantage of ours will just be that we'll, you know, um in some rate limited way, probably pay for them and make it easier to onboard or let like you know companies building on Nukebar. Um or Nectar. I need to get used to the new naming. Um, Nectar. manage that? Yeah, it's 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 a better name. I could talk mm-hmm. talk about that part later. Um and so yeah, and then direct and indirect nodes is just this idea that um, if you're a node that has a its own IP address um, or own IP and port, we should acknowledge that. And you should be able to tell people on the PKI that they can definitely hit you here. And if you're someone who doesn't have an IP and port that they can reach you at, um, say that here's someone who does uh, and you can route through them to me and we'll, you know that'll be encrypted the whole way. Now, the super technical listeners might be asking, why don't you use NAT busting to get nodes that are, um, you know, maybe a laptop at home behind its router, but still accessible in some predictable way? And the answer is that uh, that's a little bit finicky. It's a later optimization that our architecture absolutely leaves room for and would fit in here. Um, And we're just, you know, leaving the later optimization till later. And for now, just being like, you know, either you have a static IP and port or you're, uh, you know, behind a router. But either way, the network will just work. And for now, like, you know, the value of just working outweighs other considerations. And I think that's something you'll find sort of through our whole stack that we really keep in mind. Like, just working is really, really, really important.
2: I, I should be able to close my laptop and open my laptop and have my Nectar node work, my indirect node work. I guess- We, is
1: it- ha- we have the technology.
2: That's that's what I, that's what I like to hear. It's robust. I know that Bitchel loves the word robust, so I'm going to say I'm going to use it. Yes.
0: His,
1: his fiance okay. does too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, I think robustness is a big, big word that we use because it's useful it's, to have. It's robust itself. That- yeah, it is. Um and it keeps the team focused on what you're trying to do because you can evaluate a lot of decisions. Like if you're asking, you know, should we do some kind of complicated potentially fragile stuff uh to get direct connections to nodes that are behind um, you know, NATs or home routers? Um or should we do the simpler version for now and see whether we can make that robust later? It makes that decision for you if you're, you know, wondering what does it mean to back up data? It becomes very clear that it means like If I have a a snapshot of my machine that might be like, you know, five minutes old and my main machine crashes, I should be able to restore from that snapshot and have stuff work without getting into weird, inconsistent states. And, you know, this goes all the way through, like, you know, even our build tools, developer tools for like starting up projects. You need to make a lot of choices so that people aren't jiggling with settings or getting going. You can think of it as like going down bad paths. Like computers are very much mazes where you're kind of making these, you know, thousands, millions of sort of decisions every second uh, where data on your computer is changing. And it's pretty challenging, but desirable that none of those paths leads to like, you know, a dead end in the maze that you can't backtrack out of, or like, you know, where you, you sort of lose all your lives and you can't restore in the video game. And so sticking to this idea of robustness and kind of saying it a lot, even though it sort of sounds funny, it's really helpful for letting everyone on the team make decisions, have a better idea of what the right decision is, and just know like when we're ready. Like when we're talking about releasing our developer beta or something, when is it ready? It's ready when it's sufficiently robust that... Someone can come on and use it, and it will like you know just work for them. They can get it in. They can't go down any paths
0: that are impossible to recover from, etc. No, no more robust. I'm ro- robusting over that word. I think that um, my 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 problem with that is just that I think it sometimes leaves things vague when we could be saying something specific. Um, but I like. I do like that you know the general idea is that um, you know we it, it, the product needs to be more than sufficient, you know it needs to uh, to do more than pass a minimum level, right? It needs to it needs to satisfy us in ways we didn't even it's, know we needed.
1: It's interesting that you say that it's vague because for me it's very specific, and I guess I get this very visual, uh, tactile like image in my head of like you know you have this like box that you're kicking around uh, and it keeps mm-hmm. working right and it feels like you get dirt on it it's fine you plug it in and it still works um you know like like this idea of like you can just do a lot of stuff to it And it keeps it keeps going. It's resilient to that. So you know, resilient might be even a better word than robust. But Mm -hmm. that picture is like clear. Like I I guess, and you know, Josh gave the example of you know you can shut your laptop and it still works. But yeah, you can unplug your internet. You can break your computer, but you have a backup. Uh, You can you know, lose your network keys, but you can restore them on like on the chain. Just every like this idea of like, you know, you kick it a lot, bad stuff happens, but then you can still sort of get up and have uh, and, you know, get back to, you know, get back to using it, I think is important for a variety of applications. Mm-hmm. And I think it's achievable.
0: Yeah. Well, let me um, talk about, you know, we say getting back to using it. And Josh mentioned <clears throat> this idea of closing your laptop and it still works, which to some people, that sounds. That might sound dumb. It's like, yeah, I close my laptop every day, and everything I do on it works fine. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess that raises the question: Who is Nectar for? At least this first version of it. Um, who is going to get a lot out of using Nectar, and and what would they be doing with it?
1: The first version is absolutely for developers, and now. That's a little bit of a risky thing to say or I guess risk of be, there's a risk of being misunderstood because when you say that a thing is for developers, you create the implicit expectation that your thing is going to be hard to use and that person needs a level of sophistication. And I don't mean that at all because I think uh, computer programmers are extremely lazy people in a lot of ways. They'll often have like one area in which they're extremely knowledgeable and sort of booted up on a day-to-day basis. And in that area, they're willing to take on a lot of complexity. But in every other area, just because like, you know, they're not booted up on it, uh, they don't want any complexity. Uh, They want stuff to, again, just work. So we're trying to make something that, you know, gives you this feeling as a developer that you can access lots of different types of resources uh, and plug them into a network. Um, Access like crypto, access like, you know, storage, access, um, you know, being able to put together multiple users into a network, um, access LLMs over the network or on your local machine and, you know, expose them to everything else. And so we're trying to give developers in a very, very clean, simple way this like this feeling of possibility and ease of tapping into the network it's almost like this feeling of you know like the the feeling of like you know you're like in movies when you're like a hacker in a cafe and you go and like you know wreak all this havoc like over you know your I feel laptop. that way
0: anytime i have a terminal command line open
1: <laughs> yeah and, and then and then you like you know shut your you know shut your laptop finish your coffee and like walk out into the street where there's thousands of other people like going by um, that's actually like a pretty that's a very cool feeling and it's enabled in this context if you're able to just fire up your laptop, start developing, have your programs um, be able to hit like you know this like live network where the other nodes also have you know strong capabilities and are cool deployment targets for your apps if they want to use them. And I think getting away a little bit from the feeling that everything interesting and real happens, you know, in this sort of production cloud setting where you're always like, you know, your program isn't real until it's running on like, you know, AWS or something like that. You can do your kind of fun little thing on your computer, but then in order to make it real and live, you have to do that. So I think, um, you know, one of our developers had this, you know, kind of dumb demo where he was doing something with like showing song lyrics served. But like the idea was, you know, he had it on uh, a machine that was publicly accessible um very like very easy for him to do and he could just you know then send out a link and everyone would be immediately playing with it um and so i think that kind of feeling that deployment to lots of people is doable and there's this interesting network to deploy on is really important um the second stage of target would be to companies um and projects and groups who want to basically develop software that's trying to get an audience of tens hundreds thousands of users and then be able to distribute the software to them in a way where they can say either you have a nectar node and you can you know plug into it in this way and maybe we can detect that or we'll set up a network node for you or here's you know how to download one that's prepackaged with our stuff and taps into that network so also for companies getting that like you know simpler deployment tapping into a network i think for users It'll like if you're just an end user, will you usually be saying I want to get on Nectar? I think you will. The history of computing is that people like platforms are really really important, but that people do things because of applications. And so I think it's pretty likely that people will get on Nectar because an application that they want to use onboards them to it. Um, it it's it's cool to have the idea of let's get lots of people just running the nodes and then see what applications uh, you can run on them. But the problem you have there is that even if you get like hundreds, thousands of enthusiasts to be like, okay, we're running these nodes. What do we say to each other? What do we do? Um, you then are like sort of all the way back to trying to find product market fit and what they can do on them. And that's not always what you,
0: you know. I mean, I mean, that's kind of what happened to Urbit, right? Was uh, everyone was excited about the prospect of Urbit, but nothing, you No, know, very few applications came out of it that you know, did something useful.
1: Yeah, that, that has this kind of pernicious side effect where, you know, you'd have all the users and you feel like there should be a way to get, like, product market fit, but you're like, you know, not even pushing, what can I actually do with this thing? Like, um, and I, I think that when companies came in and started trying to provide apps to that network... Uh, they started to find severe limitations in terms of performance and what they could actually deliver. And a lot of use cases converged on some variant of Chat app because you know the bandwidth of a system dictates what you can write in it, and that's sort of its whole other, you know interesting tangent. But like there there was a very specific amount of bandwidth available um, in Urbit, and it converged on chat apps. And so no one, because like you didn't have app first and then network building off of that second, um, you know, a lot of companies would find that, oh, it was actually like really hard to find that. And it was, you know, people kind of continuously frustrated in terms of, okay, how do we actually utilize the fact that there's this network of enthusiasts with, um, you know, machines running nodes?
2: There's something I want to, um maybe this is part of uh, infrastructure of Nectar, but I remember when we were or when we were thinking about doing a pivot uh one thing that was maybe sort of shocking to us was the uh sudden existence of GPT-4 people may not remember like how how shocking that was but it was a huge leap from what was it 3.5 to 4 and yeah it- i mean this was like
1: this was like late march 2023 and i, I can i had any number of conversations with people across tech inside our project inside Urban, just general friends and like I think people sort of forget now because it feels like stuff slowed down in some ways. But, I mean, a lot of people went through severe existential crisis at that point. Like, it was like, you know, are the paper clips coming, like, you know, next month? Um, it was, yeah, it, it, those were pretty pretty crazy times. And we might, you know, someone could release, like, a next step up in performance and kind of throw us right back there.
2: Yeah, I, I the, there was a question um, in that, though, which is sort of um, how has, uh, we, we do talk about AI a lot. And I'm interested to know, how is Nectar good for integrating AI? What are we thinking about for integrating AI?
1: So before I get to the, like, you know, let's say sort of decentralized AI topic, I think the first thing to say is that one of the best uses of current LLMs has been as a programming game. That's, like, by far probably the best, like, you know, sort of product market fit of them right now. And it's the people who have had their productivity boosted the most are definitely either programmers or people who even couldn't be programmers. Uh, But definitely professional programmers have had, you know, pretty big productivity boosts. And one really big benefit of the switch that we made and being able to write stuff in, you know, Rust, JavaScript, Python, whatever, is suddenly, like, your whole development environment is now... Um, LLM compatible along with the the boosts you get there. So that both helps our kernel development and maintenance and also just writing apps. Um, I know, you know, let's say on the urban side, people have speculated that large increases in like context windows or performance uh, could let, you know, an LLM just grok the language from scratch, which, you know, would be a nice boon to, let's say, like uh, Hoon programming. Um, So far, you know, we're not there and probably a couple generations off being able to do that. So I think, like, being able to tap into that is a big deal. But I think the second part of your question is how we integrate with AI. There's two headings that this goes under. And the first is AI compute and AI, like, resources. And that's the idea that you can take a Nectar node, put it anywhere that there's, let's say, a GPU, whether it's your MacBook, um, uh, you know, an NVIDIA, Uh, Machine in the cloud, uh, whatever you have. And we can run some programs in the Nectar node that then expose that resource to the network. So we can do like sharded inference where, you know, each like, you know, a a set of nodes uh, is combining to run a model bigger than any of them individually could run. Uh, We can probably extend that to fine tuning. Um, Doing that for training is tough. There's some papers that are promising in that direction, like the D-Loco one, but it's not clear yet. I think a lot of people who talk about distributed training aren't really into the weeds on how hard that is. But, you know, I think we're well positioned if that becomes possible. So that's one side is, you know, exposing resources and trying to take steps to decentralize the current, like, you know, AI compute clusters and the dependence on, you know, massive compute clusters, uh, putting those, you know, putting those out there and allowing, you know, people to write incentivization protocols, coordination protocols, et cetera. The other big use is data integration. So Nectar nodes can integrate anything. Uh, One thing we try to do a lot in developing apps is to sort of practice and test um, hitting outside APIs, data sources that people have, stuff like that in order to ingest them. Because then you can create a marketplace in applications to do stuff with that data in interesting ways, Um, particularly like, you know, AI powered. And then you can also even hook that back, you know, sort of into the idea of decentralized compute resources where you're running models in a decentralized way or locally on your node um, and on data that's now been ingested locally. And I think the thing that then is sort of implicit in both of those and ties them together is this idea of a, if you want to have a, Real decentralization, you need standardization, and so having a standardized way to write programs, deploy them, store their data, um, you, you know, talk to the different like nodes and give them identities. That's necessary in order to make this kind of a predictable, stable environment that can fit together in a way that you know LLMs can reliably access and do stuff with, without it just breaking at the
0: edges. And Nectar sort of affords the same. AI promises that people hoped Urbit would. This might be more from a user perspective, right? Mm-hmm. But when you have all of your data on your node, this unlocks two things for AI, particularly in the genre of um, personal AI, which we've talked about multiple times on the show, including with Owen Barnes. And it mm-hmm. unlocks it unlocks two things. One is safety, right? Is having AI that you f- can feel comfortable giving all of your data to. And two is, you know, power and uh, expressivity and um, robustness of the tools that are being offered because you can, you can actually give it all of your data and that data can come from not just a single application or set of applications, but everything you use because it's all um, composable together inside of your, your Nectar node. Um, So I I guess this is something that it's less about like the actual AI hookups and like coding and how it assists your productivity, but the types of tools that are going to be offered might, you know, the the final best version of AI has to live on something like Nectar for everyday use. I
1: agree. And this isn't a super controversial statement. If you go to any conference about, you know, a, like sort of AI in general or decentralized AI or AI on your data, pretty much everyone will independently rederive something that looks kind of like Nectar, uh, where it's like a person, like, you know, some sort of personal node or that you can, you know, run like, you know, stand like a standardized decentralized network, something like that. And that's great. That's really like, that's really cool. I think people underestimate the degree of like schlep there is in getting all of that to like work together properly and that's what we're doing but i don't think anyone really questions the desirability of such a thing for like the purpose that you mentioned and so all we're trying to do is like and i think doing pretty successfully to this point and we'll show people very soon is really just do that schlep for them so that the thing they sort of think should exist For, you know, operating on your personal data using AI and operating on your crypto, like your crypto data and unifying it, like to make such a thing, like to make it actually exist. And, you know, there's a lot of things like this in software where people sort of underestimate the importance or ease of integration and how important it is for everything to fit together tightly and for some entity to like actually exercise kind of taste and work to like make that all fit. And, you know, we're just we're just doing that. And so in some ways, we're very, very ambitious in trying to create a new standard. But in other ways, we're just taking something that lots of people think should exist and just making it actually be there so that we can, you know, go to the next level of, you know, human evolution, which is we we actually have these things now, what are we going to do with them?
2: So in uh using Urbit again as an example we we saw hosting start to pop up i think there were probably four or five hosting companies maybe mm-hmm. more uh, at some point but how does hosting look in uh, nectar world or is it and is it going to be a uh a business that is in any way profitable or are we going to give hosting away for free that sort of thing
1: so i'm a hosting bull because at the end of the day, there's a lot of things in these personal nodes that probably work a little better if they're you know, always on or always accessible in a certain way, uh, can be set up by someone for you um, and maintained. But I think that in order to be like a hosting bull, you have to be like a hosting minimalist because hosting is just so cost and maintenance dependent. Like in order for it to be you know, interesting and doable, it has to be as easy and cheap as possible, which means you actually have to make hosting, let's call them sort of sovereign nodes, um, as easy and cheap and reliable as possible. So I think that in a lot of our development work so far, we've actually focused almost completely on making sort of regular nodes as easy to run as we can. And in doing so, whenever we look at what it would cost, Uh, both from a DevOps perspective, like just maintaining it, you know, running in the cloud um, and like just a resource uh, perspective, that's been going steadily down because we've been, you know, making the system more performant, more reliable, and all those things make it a lot easier uh, to host them. As far as like will hosting be a business? Probably yes. When I look even at, 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 whenever you have anything that relies on kind of, Commoditized, like you know, you you imagine just running lots of nodes out there. Um, those things usually, like usually, someone uh, or a few people or a few entities will get experience in doing that and drive it down. I feel like in in Erbit, I do think there was maybe an overinvestment in hosting for two reasons. The first is just that you know people it, it was pretty hard to run nodes on your own, and so. When I was saying you want to be like almost a hosting minimalist in order to be a hosting maximalist, I think because, you know, people were kind of using it as a crutch. Like, um, okay, we're, we're going to need to host because these don't work that well if they're just on your you know, computer, for example. Um, or you need a lot of resources or you need a lot, you know, a fair amount of maintenance. And so, yeah, I think that was one reason. I think the other reason was that again, you saw this network with a certain number of users and people sort of try to find business opportunities on top of that. And, you know, if you're having a hard time seeing applications you can deliver, uh, the next obvious thing is try to like, you know, deliver picks and shovels um, and try to build that. And I think to, to some degree, there was an aspect of that just being like the most obvious idea sitting there, um, but also like the limiter for it. So for us, I would think hope that we'll work pretty closely with the first applications and projects that build really interesting things on us uh to make hosting easy for them and maybe you know do it ourselves somewhat but and and then from there probably someone will find a way to make it you know an efficient low margin commoditized business but i as i said our first version of this is really targeted at like developers and so i think that lets you like productively put off the hosting question for a little bit because you can get so much development value from running it in a network of, you know, nodes where they're mostly uh, either laptops or non-hosting cloud nodes that are intended to expose some sort of like, you know, maybe GPU resource or, you know, storage resource or something like that.
2: Well, you you mentioned performance and now the like, you know, 80s cartooner tuner in me wants to ask the question, how performant is nectar in comparison to some other sort of uh you know you could you could compare it to urban you can compare it to like the speed of python and the speed of javascript i think it's probably going to blow those out of the water yeah
1: python and javascript run at roughly like like they're slower than rust programs um, but by about the same amount they're slower uh when you run them on your you know just normal computer versus rust programs um i think um nectar runs at pretty normal speeds like the networking speeds are mostly using the connection applications don't have you know a big you know performance a big performance penalty there's some performance penalty in wasm versus running native on your computer it's like you know maybe half as fast um 70 as fast like something in that range but that's still you know in a lot of modern computers very very fast and like means that you can do lots of things um it, I guess I would say it as with the exception of some extremely performance sensitive things like, um, you know, um, AI inference and things like that, that you probably need to run natively and pipe in via sidecar or something. Uh, Most other kinds of things that you would want to write, like any kind of data processing thing you want to do any like, you know, a real time game uh, would work fine. You know, all those things you'll be, if you, Think you should be able to do them, you can do them. There's not this big gap between I can do this thing normally when I write it as a program on my computer, but now that I'm on Nectar, I just can't do it because there's this big performance hit. It's, you know, we're we're within range. We're in the same order of magnitude.
0: All right. So now we have an understanding of what Nectar is, how it works, and how we got here. But I guess the most important question then is where is nectar going so we wanted to ask a little bit about the the timeline when will developers be able to get their hands on this and what does the next year or so look like for nectar and its development
1: we want to get a developer beta in developers hands during january and that has two purposes to get them excited about writing apps on us and show them you know how you know how it works have us learn about you know, where are the gaps where we need to educate people better and, you know, make it easier to uh, use for developers. And the second one is also to find out how to make it easy for developers to package it for users. As we start seeing, you know, applications developed, uh, we can find what's the best way, like what kind of hosting is best? When can you, you know, download the node on your computer? When does that make sense? um, And figuring that stuff out. And then that'll go towards a more stable release, probably in the spring, um, from which we would maintain backwards compatibility, and again from there, just keeping um, onboarding people, building stuff, uh, see, you know, seeing new things, looking if there's any breakout stuff that's like particularly interesting to use, and like you know, really supporting the people who build that. And as the year goes on, the goal is to turn it like turn Nectar OS into a protocol that's very reliable that you can build on. Like you can be like, okay, I can you know, make apps that reliably depend on having identities here. Um, I know I'll be able to use X either hosting setup or give this configuration to my users and they'll be able to, you know, store their data long term. Um, You know, anything related to aspects of the network that require, you know, governance or parameters, uh, getting those put into like, you know, a cryptographic protocol. Um, you know, we haven't talked about whether we, you know, tokenize it in any form yet, but that's like, you know, a possibility if it makes, if it makes sense. Um, and yeah, just taking the year to, I guess at a broad level, it would be making it possible to build things on it, um, in a very, in as easy as a way as possible. And then taking the things that like in actuality we see get built on it, And amplifying those as much as possible. And this is really, really similar to the path of, you know, crypto networks in general. If you look at sort of, you know, layer ones or layer twos in particular, where they're trying to get people building on it, seeing what's interesting, seeing what people respond to. And I think the the interesting thing about us is just that, you know, we're sort of a meta layer on top of that. We're something that, you know, a protocol that lets you get more out of those protocols, like Ethereum, it's L2, Solana, what have you, um, because we have this off like, you know, really rich off-chain component and network that can put that together. And so it's almost like we're starting from where Ethereum was in like 2016, in terms of getting this tool out there, making it easy for people to use, getting people excited about it, seeing, you know, what they build. Um, but with the difference being that there, you can write much, much richer applications on us as people get excited about it and find stuff. So I think it's like very much like the early stage of a, you know, layer one um, crypto network, except that with a decentralized operating system that can tap into crypto, there's just a way wider set of things you can write. So, you know, if we do our job right, there should be this like application renaissance in what people, you know, can build and what we see out there that we haven't really seen since... You know, the start of smart contracts uh, where we've been, you know, limited by the bandwidth of smart contracting systems during that time.
0: Yeah, that's really exciting. And I think that we can't wait to show everyone who's listening what Nectar is going to look like in the coming weeks. You know, we're going to be releasing a, a ton of stuff from articles to our documentation um, to tutorial videos and we want anyone who is interested to reach out to us um, to get involved to come find us on x and discord because we're we're hanging out a lot in there and it's you know there's a lot of energy and it's a it's a pretty exciting time so uh tim thank you so much for coming back on the network age back where yeah, it was uh, fun um, where it kind all of started. ready to go
1: back to Ready to go back to, like, building now. And I think, like, even especially, as you said, like, talking to people in chat and getting that energy going. Because I think it's fun to talk about this and introduce it to people more broadly. But I'm a little tired of, like, talking about how these systems should work. No more talk. Yeah, the most exciting thing for me day to day is seeing, you know, what we're actually able to build. Seeing, like, the little, like, you know, green shoots coming out there. Seeing stuff be fast. Seeing how it can be stable and actually getting stuff like written is really more exciting than, I don't know. I feel like, you know, even on the network age when I was on it and back there, I think we did a lot of talking about what this world would look like. And I think the guys on our team have been getting more and more excited the last couple months as they've actually seen it start happening and kind of feel it happening under their fingertips. And so I think that's what I'd like to get people more of. um, And I think you can get a little bit of that. In our chats, and we'll give you the link to our Discord uh, when a sort of native Nectar chat application is ready. Um, You know, we'll also publicize that. But for now, we're on the Discord. I think we'll be on Twitter more talking about this, uh, like, about this stuff. But I think, like, yeah, a little bit just a little bit less talk, um, you know, a little bit more showing what we can do.
0: Yeah, I mean, Ferrari didn't become Ferrari on paper, you know. They did it on the track, so... That's where uh, Interesting that's where we going to be go with
1: that one. But yeah, yeah, I, I guess they didn't man. really do it on the track this year. But um, this, well, yeah, you know, Nectar long is history. Red Bull. Yeah.
0: Um, all right. Well, uh, Josh, anything you want to say to the listeners before we do our final final salute?
2: Um, no, just that I I don't ever get your sports references and it makes me feel poor.
0: You you know what a Ferrari is. I know
2: what a Ferrari is, but you know. Yeah, I but could... he's
0: thinking of Ferrari in an
1: F one context where he's not familiar. Th- that with is the,
2: what you're talking you know, about, I assume. Red
1: Bull's right? current dominance. Every yeah. time
2: you guys talk about like uh, NBA, you, you're like um, somebody's mad about some guy named OG <laughs> going to another. <laughs> Basketball team. I, <laughs>
1: they're not mad about them. They're they're People excited are, about like oh, yeah, the possibilities big, for oh, okay. you know for the Dicks so to have like a really like a true big win. I have, zero,
2: <laughs> I have zero context for either NBA or F one uh you mm-hmm. know, I'm I'm from Georgia and we watch football.
0: Great. Well And only uh, college you know, football at that. Like. Yeah, only college Hey, yeah, uh, uh go grids. Uh, you know, by the time this airs <laughs> we'll find out if we're <laughs> national champions. Yeah, that's All right.
2: that's the point is I, I wanted to leave my listeners with that piece of information that I have no idea for, what you guys are talking for about. For one
0: final time for now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening. I am for the last time Vigil Ritson, and uh we'll well we'll see you on, on Nectar. Thanks for listening. The Nectar Age. Yes.